Well, good evening. Be helpful if you could keep your Bibles open at the passage that Christoph read to us a few moments ago from Romans chapter 8. As he said tonight, we're going to be looking at chapter 8, verses 18 through to the end of the chapter, verse 39. And you'll find that on page 1135 of the Bible in the pew. Now, as Christoph has already alluded to, if you've been with us in, in Kirkpatrick on Sunday evenings since last autumn, you'll know that we've been studying together the letter that Paul wrote when he was based in Corinth to the Christians who were living then in Rome about 57 AD. And you'll know that Paul's primary purpose in writing the letter was pastoral. It was to encourage the Christians living in Rome to understand God's rescue plan for all of humankind. Now, in doing so, we've seen that he's tackled some pretty difficult issues many of which we find hard to understand. Now, perhaps having got this far in the letter, it might be useful just to, to recap, as Christoph has sought to do tonight through the, the, the songs that we've been singing, uh, some of the themes that we've already touched on. I think Paul's style in, in writing his letter is a bit like a, a musical symphony. He's got different themes emerging at different times, but through it all comes a, a prominent theme that of God's marvelous rescue plan, God's way of reuniting all of humankind with him. And thus, so far, we've seen Paul dwell on issues about man's sinfulness, about faith, about truth, about justification. And in recent weeks, we've seen Paul touch on the issue, the, the theologians give it the name, sanctification, the process of how we become more like God as we live our lives here on earth. And it's in that last theme, that theme of sanctification, that we want to spend some time together on this evening. But before we do so, let's take a moment just to pray to God and let's ask him to bless our time together. Father, we thank you for the different ways in which you've chosen to speak to us. We want to thank you tonight, Father, for your written word, the Bible. Father, we know that this book is not just another book, but it is different as it speaks the words of the almighty living God. Father, we ask that tonight, through your Holy Spirit, you would give us an understanding of your word and a willingness to follow its teaching. Amen. One of the, the interesting things we've been finding as a, a family is that as our children have got older, they start to, to listen to music that they think is new, and they're amazed and, and are in disbelief when they tell you that actually that song did the rounds when we were their age. Now, recently this happened to us when uh, our kids started to listen to the 1980s song by Tears for Fears. Some of you might remember it, Mad World. Just in case you don't, let me give you some of the words that they sang. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces, bright and early for their daily races, going nowhere, going nowhere. Their tears are filling up their glasses. They have no expression, no expression. Hide my head. I want to drown my sorrow, for there's no tomorrow, no tomorrow. And then the song moves on to the repetitive chorus. 
It's a mad world. It's a mad world. That song expressed for a generation that lived through the tough times of the 1980s a sense of hopelessness and despair as they struggled to cope with life. But our sense of, of struggle and of despair can't be confined to a, a particular decade. I think probably at all times we've had to face tough times. Some of you might remember Noel Card. Noel Card captured it succinctly when he said about difficulties, difficulties, there are bad days just around the corner. And isn't that right? Now, for some of us, it's, it's physical difficulties, perhaps a, a permanent disability, maybe difficulties associated with, with old age or an acute illness or a disease. For some of us, it's, it's emotional difficulties, difficulties in relationships or mental well-being. Some of us struggle with depression or anxiety. For some, perhaps many at the moment, we face financial difficulties as we struggle to pay all the things that need to be paid for. And for some, the difficulties we face are, are spiritual difficulties as we seek to find something to fill that God-shaped hole that we've all been created with. And for lots of us, the difficulties we face fall into more than one of those categories. And for Christians, for those who have a living relationship with Almighty God, we don't find ourselves exempt from the difficulties and struggles of life. We struggle, I guess if we're truthful, every single one of us struggles with lots of difficulties, with lots of troubles and lots of trials in our life. For trouble, trouble is all around us. And it's been so, it's been so for a very long time. It was just like that in the days that Paul was writing. The Bible doesn't engage in any form of escapism. It doesn't seek to pretend that life is without its difficulty. Rather, it deals with the reality of life, a life with trouble in it. Now, of course, it wasn't always like this. In the early chapters of Genesis, we read of a time before the fall of man when man lived in harmony and the world was trouble-free. And of course, one day, the Bible says, it will be like that again. When Jesus returns and this chapter of history closes, trouble will be vanished for those who have a relationship with God. For them, the Bible teaches, there'll be no more sorrow or trouble or mourning or hardship for that old order of things, that'll be done away with. But that's not the way it is right here, right now. For trouble is very much with us. From the time of the fall recorded in Genesis until Jesus Christ returns to this earth, in this middle period of time, life will be full of difficulties. And here in the passage that we're going to look at tonight, Paul acknowledges that life is like that. You'll see references to difficulties scattered throughout the passage that Christoph read to us. Have a quick scan down it and see what I mean. In verse 18, Paul talks of suffering. In verse 22, he talks about the difficulties of creation. He talks about creation groaning. In verse 26, he refers to, to humans, and he refers to them having weaknesses. 
And look at the list in verse 35 of some of the troubles that we can well face in this life. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, demons. Paul acknowledges what life here on earth in this middle period of time is like. A life of trial and a life of difficulty. But here in this this portion of his letter in Romans, Paul seeks to help his fellow believers in first century Rome and us in 21st century Belfast to deal with those troubles of life. Now, of course, there's a great deal of teaching in the Bible on this issue. And Paul doesn't purport in this passage to give us all the answers. And it's far beyond the scope of what we're going to do tonight to give a comprehensive overview of the Bible's teaching. But nevertheless, he does in this passage draw out some very important truths that are very helpful. He homes in on three particular truths that he believes will help his readers in times of difficulty. Truth number one, you'll find that in verse 18 through to verse 25, Paul tells his readers never to forget there is a hope. Things in the future will, for some, work out well. Truth number two, in verses 26 and 27, Paul reminds his readers that the Holy Spirit is there to help them. And truth number three, in verses 29 and 30, Paul encourages us to draw our, drawing our minds to the fact that we have been chosen by Almighty God as objects of his loving care and concern. Let's take a few minutes just to look at each of those truths in turn. Truth number one, how do we cope with the trials of life? Paul tells us, never forget there is a hope that things for some in the future will work out well. Verses 18, 3 to 25. Now, for the second time tonight, I'm going to give you some information that will help you date me. Um, If you were around Belfast in the 1980s, you might remember an evangelistic slogan that was used to promote the Christian message. There was a campaign running which used the slogan, on the side of buses and on various things, there is hope. For hope for the future is one of the defining characteristics of the Christian faith. The argument Paul deploys in verses 18 through to 25 is straightforward. If you have a proper perspective on what the future holds for you as a Christian, you will get great hope and great comfort through the trials and the difficulties of life. Now, the idea that having a positive perspective on the future will aid us in life has a broad acceptance throughout society. One of the the most memorable, if if disturbing, days that I spent uh, in recent years was a day trip I made to, to Auschwitz, the Nazi death camp in Poland. It's a chilling place, a place that reminds you of man's inhumanity to man. When I was there, I was reminded of the Austrian Jew, uh, Viktor Frankl, who survived the horrors of Auschwitz. He wrote of his experiences and his observations uh, later in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And one of his observations was that those who had managed to survive the death camps 
were, were those who had a hope, while those who had no hope for the future perished. Of course, simply saying that we have a hope is of, of some value, but better still is having a hope that we'll be certain will come true. Let's look for a moment at what Paul says about the hope that Christians have as he tells his, his readers what the future has in store for them. Now, it's, of course, unwise to read too much into this or, or indeed any other teaching the Bible gives us about the end times as it often expresses the events that will happen in a most general way. When I was a child, it was fascinating to see people who were, could confidently predict in their, their dispensational theology exactly what the Bible taught. And yet, while it's maybe unwise to go beyond what Scripture clearly teaches it would also be unwise for us not to think and not to ponder over what's in the text about what the future holds for us. But do remember that caveat that I have about not reading too much into it. Tony Campolo puts it rather well when he talks about the end times. He says that he'd much rather be on the welcoming committee than on the program committee. Remember how we spoke earlier of the age in which we live as being the time from the fall to when Jesus returns? That age will pass when Jesus Christ returns and a new dawn uh, will be reached. Here Paul tells us something about that age, that future age that will come. He tells us something about God in those days, something about ourselves, and something about the created world. First of all, something about God. You'll find that in verse 18. In verse 18, Paul tells us that in the future, there will be a glory that will be revealed. Now, you'll see in the, the NIV, that is, it says that the glory will be revealed for us. In fact, that, that sentence is better tra- translated, that there will be a glory. Uh, sorry, it says in us. It's better translated for us. Here, Paul's referring to the fact that one, j- one day, Jesus Christ will return to this earth, his second coming here. Unlike his first, when he arrived in a Spartan stable in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire, this time he'll arrive in a blaze of glory. Now, we're told something of what that second coming is going to be like in the book of Revelation. When John writes these words, he pictures it as seeing Jesus, heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. His eyes are blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and the armies of heaven were following him. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. What a day that will be when Jesus comes again. The future for us something about God. The second thing Paul tells us is in the future is something about ourselves. You'll find that in verse 19. Paul says that in the future, when Jesus comes again, the sons of God will be revealed. Now, when he says the sons of God, what he means there are Christians, those who have put their trust in God. What does it mean for us that we will be revealed? Essentially, Paul's saying that in the future, we'll be changed. In the future, if you and I are Christians, when Jesus comes again, 
we will be changed people. Again, we learn uh, more about this, more detail about it from other parts of the Bible. And again, we don't know all. But what we do know is this. We're going to be changed physically. Our old physical bodies will be replaced by something new, something different, spiritual ones. We'll be changed morally as the wrong that we find that we're so susceptible to, to do no longer has any sway with us. And we'll be changed spiritually as our restless desire to know God fully is finally satisfied. Now, aside from these changes, our status with God will be finalized. Since, as Paul says in verse 23, we're going to be adopted as his sons. All of the great privileges and blessings of heaven that have been stored up for us are finally put at our disposal because we're children of the king. We're members of the royal family, prince and princesses who will reign with Christ over the new heaven and the new earth. The future something of God and the future something of us. And then finally, something of creation. You'll find that in verses 20 and 21. Now, creation is at present in decay, and it's been like that since the fall when God gave to Adam and Eve the curse, when he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. It will produce thorns and it will produce thistles. Now, we can, of course, each of us testify to the truth of that. Leave your garden unattended for too long, and the flowers and the plants will be smothered by thorns and weeds. And, of course, we're all witness, even this week, to the calamitous power of nature. But God says in the future, this decay, it will cease, and the created order will be restored Listen to how Isaiah foresees this. Isaiah writes, The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard, it will lie down with the goat. They will neither harm nor destroy, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. The future, something about creation. And at the heart of this passage is one of the most vivid images of hope that of birth pangs. Paul describes the whole creation as being in labor, longing for God's new world to be born. And Christians, we're called to share that pain and that hope. We're not to be apart from it. We're not to be apart from the pain, and we're not to be apart from the hope. This is part of our calling, our high but strange calling our role within God's purpose for creation. But we take great hope in the midst of our present difficulties, whatever they are, that one day we will enjoy a new life and a different one, one without trial and without trouble. Second reason that Paul gives us to, to help us cope with the, the future, you'll find that in verses 26 and verses 27. The second truth Paul reminds us that we should remember that the Holy Spirit will aid us in maintaining our relationship with God through difficult times. Now, we've touched tonight already, Christos mentioned already something of the Holy Spirit, and we know from the, the Bible 
uh, some of the roles that the Holy Spirit has and some of his characteristics. We know that he's one part of the triune God, the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three but yet one. And we know that the Holy Spirit had a role in creation. The Father, he spoke the words of creation. The Son carried out his decrees. And the Spirit, it moved and hovered over the earth as it manifested God's presence. And we know something of the role the Spirit has in God's rescue plan. We know that the Father planned it. The Son obeyed and accomplished it. And the Spirit, he applies it to our lives. Now, in this passage in Romans, we're told of yet another role that the Spirit has, that of aiding us as we pray to God in difficult times. Now, in verse 26, you see that Paul reminds us that the Spirit is, in general, a force for our good, and specifically, that he will help us in our weakness when we're struggling to pray. In this life, amidst all of the disappointments and trials, we're called to continue to pray to God to maintain our direct communication with him. Now, prayer, as you know, can take lots of of different forms. We can express our adoration to God. We can confess uh, our sin. We can express our thankfulness to him. And we can ask him to help us and others uh, in difficult times. God wants each of us to pray because in praying, it expresses our dependence on him. And thus, when we are facing trials... We acknowledge in prayer our limitations and instead our need of God to deal with the issue. Prayer is vital all the time for ensuring that we've got a proper appreciation of who God is, but it's especially vital in times of difficulties. We should be a people who are always at prayer. Sometimes, however, you might find the circumstances that you're facing in life so difficult that you find it hard to give expression to your prayers. Here Paul tells us of the role that the Holy Spirit plays when this happens. He tells us that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us. Now he doesn't do so in isolation from us. We have a role still to pray, but the Spirit works in partnership with us. When we're struggling to gather our thoughts in prayer, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes alongside and assists us. When we're praying in times of trouble, we're not alone. We take great comfort in the difficult circumstances of life when we recall that the Holy Spirit is with us. He will never leave us, and he will help us maintain our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So far, Paul has given us two ways uh, in which uh, we can uh, be helped when facing the inevitable trials of life. And to these, he's going to add a third. You'll find it in verses 28 and 30. Paul reminds us there that we have been chosen by God as objects of his loving concern. Now, the assertion that he makes in verse 28 is pretty bold and unequivocal. Paul says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, you'll note the the careful limitation of that verse. It doesn't say all will work out for good for everyone. It confines this promise to those who have a personal relationship with God. 
In fact, that's the great dividing line of the whole human race between those who know God and those who don't. And indeed, what the Bible, of course, teaches is for those who don't love God, all is is far from well. Now, we note this verse reassures us that God controls everything. And this isn't a, a passive matter. God is actively in control. The world doesn't work automatically. He has a controlling and a sovereign hand in it. This verse is a glorious statement of truth. God is overruling everything in the whole cosmos for your good and for mine. I want you to note how comprehensive in terms of the circumstances of life God will be working for our good. Paul says it's at all times and in all things. Now, of course, it's easy for us when when things are going well to affirm that God is working for our good. That seems to us to make sense. But what about when things we don't welcome happen to us? Illness, death of a loved one, unemployment. Can we still say at those times that God is working all things for our good? Well, the Bible certainly doesn't teach that those things in themselves are good. It is, however, what God does with these things that brings about good. So how might bad things work for our good? When bad things happen to us, they awaken us from what often has been a pattern of self-reliance with little more than a cursory acknowledgement of who God is. They often cause us to rekindle our relationship with God. Most people don't go to the doctor unless they're ill, and perhaps something of the same applies to us. Perhaps we won't meet with God in the way that he would wish, without the difficulties of life having to cross our path. Paul, of course, gives an example of this in other writings from his own life, when he says that he was given by God a thorn in his flesh that threw him back, threw him off his self-reliance to rely on God. It's at times like this, times of difficulty and trial, that we often see God's kindness, his compassion, his patience, his tenderness, and his long-suffering. So often when things are going well, we are blinded to these things. Perhaps that's how God works out uh, out of bad things, good. Now, in verses 29 and 30, he further encourages us in our difficulties by reminding us that we have been chosen by God to be pacific objects of his loving care. In all the cares of life, God works for our good by revealing to us that we have been chosen especially by him. In essence, Paul is saying, before you and I were capable of knowing God, he planned that you and I would be saved and ultimately live with him in glory and experience that glorious future that we talked about earlier. Thus, our final destination to live with God has been planned by him. As such, it's a, it's a done deal. Whatever circumstances we encounter in life, our destiny to be children chosen by God That's been settled. Of course, many of you are probably thinking, that sits uneasily with the idea 
of free will that the Bible also teaches, that God created us with enough respect and dignity that we are able to choose our own destiny. Now, our Western minds find that impossible to hold those two seemingly contradictory truths together. How can God predestine our lives and yet we're free to choose? Now, we've touched on this difficult issue before, and it's not one uh, that I'm glad to say we're going to dwell on at length tonight. Safe to say that while our finite minds may not understand how we can hold these contradictory truths at the one time, we should be driven to our knees to rejoice that we know a God who is much greater than we are, who can hold those contradictory truths together. Let's rejoice in his loving care and concern for us. So far, we've seen how uh, for Paul, when facing difficult circumstances, there are some things that we can usefully fill our minds with. We have a tremendous hope for the future. We have the Holy Spirit who will aid us at times of difficulty in prayer. And we're specifically chosen by God as objects of his loving care and concern. Now, in verses 31 and, and the verse, verse 31 and the verses that follow, Paul draws that issue together for his readers, a sort of mini conclusion to this topic right in the middle of his letter. You notice that he does so by uh, providing answers to four rhetorical questions that give us confidence in God's rescue plan. He says, who is against us? And the answer, no one. God, after all, has given us his Son and will give us all things. Who will bring any charge against us? And again, no one. God himself has justified us. He has declared us to be in the right, even though we were in the wrong. And who will condemn us? And again, Paul answers, no one will. Jesus has died, he's been raised, and he's been exalted, and he intercedes for us. And then in verse 35, Paul says, who will separate us from God's love? No one will. Now, Paul goes on to list many contenders, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, demons, but he concludes that nothing we face in life will separate us from God's love and his care. What a wonderful passage Romans 8 is, a passage of reassurance when we're facing tough times. I was sharing with a friend a couple of weeks ago that I had to speak on this passage and that on first reading it seemed to be a passage of marvelous reassurance. But he told me of a time when things were difficult for him and this passage was read to him to encourage him. But he found that it wasn't a quick fix. When the truths were, were read to him and explained to him, he understood them, but he didn't suddenly feel better. And the difficulties he was facing didn't suddenly go away. And isn't that often the reality for many of us? We know the truth that the Bible is teaching. And we say genuinely that we believe it. But so often, isn't it a difficult process to have that truth shape 
our daily lives. And so the question isn't just about do we know the truth that the Bible teaches, but rather how do we get that truth from our heads to our hearts? Or as one writer puts it, how do we change it from a confessional belief that we speak to a functional belief that affects us on a daily basis? Well, we've touched before in this church many times on how that might be done. We've talked about the role of of the spiritual disciplines, of those very basic things that draw us into a living relationship with God, of prayer, of worship, and of meditation, as we ask God on a daily basis, ask God's Spirit to make these truths a reality for each of us. And so as you, you read Romans 8, maybe you read them in difficult times in your life. Maybe you've, you've uh, thought about what we've talked about tonight and say, I believe that may well not be enough. Pray together that God's Holy Spirit would make those truths a reality to each of us. Let's do that now. Let's pray to him and let's ask that he would would bless us. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you especially for its practicality, how it deals with the daily circumstances that we face in this life. Father, we thank you especially for what we have thought about tonight how to live in tough times. Father, we thank you that we have a hope that one day those of us who know you will have a glorious future when you will be revealed, when we will be changed and creation will be restored. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for all of the different roles that he plays in our lives, but we thank you especially for the assistance he gives us in prayer in maintaining our relationship with you when we find it hard to do so. And Father, we thank you that we have been specifically chosen by you as objects of your loving care and concern, and you will never, never let us go. Father, we recognize that simply knowing these truths is not enough. We need to make them real and meaningful on a daily basis. And for that, Father, we need the help of your Holy Spirit. We would ask, Father, that that your Spirit would bless us and that you would make your word live in each of us. Amen.